Spooks with Denzel Myrick and Douglas Skelton. And welcome to Spooks. It's us again. You thought we wouldn't be back after the last time, didn't you? But no, <laughs> we're here. I Definitely thought we wouldn't be back after the last time. <clears throat> you always think the worst, Douglas. You always think the worst. Yes, and well, today, you know, being, be, being associated with you, I think that's the best way to be. Well, there you are. Douglas Skelton ruins his career yet further. <laughs> Anyhow, um, we've got a fine guest for you today, uh, a doyen of historical crime writing, the lovely Shona S.G. McLean, who will be coming on in a short while. Are you looking forward to that, Douglas? Oh, yes, very much. Very much. Big fan of Shona's. Shona's great. Yes. Shona's great. I'm a big fan of her too. She's a really good writer. And I'm sure she'll have many, many interesting things to say. But prior to that, as is the spirit of Spooks, S-B-O-O-K-S, find us on Twitter and subscribe on your platform of choice, your podcasting platform of choice. And don't forget, because that's very important, you won't miss a show. Before all, before Shona comes on, we're going to talk about some films that have just come out, two films notably that have just arrived on our screens. Douglas is a resident film expert, aren't you, Doug? Okay, if you say so, yes. Well, you do do a film programme for Hospital I do, Radio. I do, I do, and I do watch a lot of films. And I have got all this nonsense cluttering up my head about movies. So, yes, I suppose so. I think generally you've got nonsense cluttering up your head. I don't think it's much to do with to some film. I just think it's general nonsense cluttering yeah, up your head. Yeah, mostly yeah. film stuff, mostly film stuff. Well, I, that's, that's debatable. Anyhow, the two films in particular we're going to discuss, it's quite difficult because uh, neither of us have seen either of them, um, which is an unusual kind of way to discuss a film. But we're going to do that. Just We just break boundaries, don't we, Douglas? Don't we, we do, we do. But really, we're going, I mean, the, the two films we're going to t- talk about, they're, they're, they're kind of cultural touchstones in a way. So we're not critiquing the movies. We're just talking about everything that surrounds them and, and the excitement that has surrounded their release. The excitement that surrounded that. See, I'm doing it again. Yeah, you are. I can't help. He will sue, you know. He will sue. Well, you'll have to find me first. Um, I'm going to Belize. Yes, with Helen Fields. I've had it. I've had it. I've had it with petrol shortages. I'm going to Belize. I don't know how I'm going to get there. I have to swim because there's no petrol or sail. I'd, I'd even as we speak. Helen Fields is changing her plans to move to Belize. I'm quite sure she is. Um, yes. So I'll just have the place to my, myself. Anyway, on to the films. Yeah. The film, first film we'll discuss is The Many Saints of Newark. Now, The Many Saints of Newark, as probably everybody on the planet knows by now, is a prequel to The Sopranos movie, uh, Sopranos' iconic television series. And I was reading again yesterday um, a little section of the New York Times that said why millennials are all watching The Sopranos. Do you want to know why, Douglas? Yes, I am all ears. Because they've tied it in with America's decline. They see the decline. I'm not going to, I'll try to give as few spoilers to the actual Sopranos series as I can, but you're looking the gradual decline of a mobster in The Sopranos, both mentally and and in these criminal enterprises. Uh, and they feel that 
American millennials identify with this decline and compare it to the decline of their nation, according to the New York Times, I hasten to add. So I don't know if that's true. I just think maybe they're watching it because it's really good TV. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably more, yeah. more to the point. Uh, it's, it's well written, it's well acted, it's well made. Um, yes, uh, quite often you find it difficult to, to sympathise with, with the characters, given what they do, even you're Tony really Soprano. To yeah, no, you're not. But uh, yeah, I think it's more to the point that it's just, it's just damn good TV, that's all. Yeah, I mean, it's probably, it's been rapidly becoming, there was always this conversation about, is The Wire better than The Sopranos or vice versa or Breaking Bad? But I think in, in lockdown, The Sopranos has become a bit of a phenomenon. And of course, on the back of that, or before that, he actually, the film was made prior to, to the COVID epidemic, uh, or most of it was. The post-production took place during <laughs> the pandemic, I think. It was The Many Saints of New York, which is being billed as an origin story for Tony Soprano, but uh, reading between the lines, I don't think it actually is. I think it's more about Dickie Moltisanti, who is Christopher, Christopher Moltisanti's father, who is referred to in the original series on a number of occasions. Uh, and I think it's more or less his origin story, though interestingly, James Gandolfini's son, Michael Gandolfini, plays the young Tony Soprano, which has attracted a lot of people to the film, I think, Douglas. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I think it has. I think it will, because last week it opened, is that right? Um, in America, and here it opened last week on, in cinemas, and it opened last Friday in the States on cable and on, or streaming and, and in cinemas, but right. there's only cinemas here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just open. But I, I did re read <clears throat> a critique of it in some of the papers, I think it was The Observer or one of the, uh, the Guardian, I can't remember. And it said, oh, you know, this is a bit like um, one long episode of The Sopranos. No kidding. <laughs> no, that's what they said. I mean, I don't really know what they expected. Um, <laughs> really? That's, that's, a, that's a disappointment. I really expected it to be a long episode of... Sex in the City? Yeah, honestly. it's a ridiculous Critics. comment to me. Critics, honestly. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> um, well, I'll not go through that again. <laughs> Especially theatre critics. Anyway, anyway. I know, I think the situation is that, that people have placed all sorts of expectations. I also noticed Mark Kermode's review. And I've always listened to Mark Kermode and I admire many things that he says and does. But I think he's got it wrong here entirely with Sopranos. For a start, he's never seen the Sopranos series. And he, during his, his review of the film, he kept referring back to the series that he'd never seen, mm. which I thought was quite confusing, didn't you? Um, yeah, I, it would be. I didn't, I didn't read or hear Mark Kermode's review. I tend, I'll be honest, I tend not to listen to critics at all. And, and I used to be one. Um, it's, uh, my, my advice to people is you can use a critic as a guide but remember that everything that they say is subjective and they approach things through their own filter um, so if they don't like this sort of thing they're just not going to like it so yeah. I, 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 you know, use them as a guide but that's all, as I say, I, I don't listen to them or read them anymore Well I found it surprising that he, you know, he started off his review on the radio by saying, oh well I don't I've never watched The Sopranos 
um, um, epic um, show. But as soon as he went into discussing the film, he talked about the Sopranos show, which, you know, uh, he, he, having not watched the, the TV series, surely he should have looked at the film and, in its own right as a, as, an, as a separate entity, which I think is what it's in, is intended to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. David Chase is on, on record as saying, you know, this isn't The Sopranos, it's a, mob, it's a mob movie. And I think he was very angry that it was released um, through a streaming service, um, as well as in, in cinema, he wanted it as a purely cinematic release. Yeah, and I think that's caused a lot of problems, which may, in the end, put put a stop to the other films which were mooted. I think there were other prequel movies mooted, mm-hmm. and um, I'm not sure if Mr. Chase will be as happy to do one as he was. But there's no doubting his genius as a creator and a writer. The Sopranos was a work of genius, both in its writing um, and its production and everything that surrounded it. Um, the actors were fabulous. Edie Falco, James Gandolfini, of course, Nancy Malshan, and all the rest of them, they were they were just fabulous. And there's some great, really great actors in here too. Uh, Alessandro Nivola, who's, who's never really hit the limelight, Douglas, has he? No, but he's one of these dependable actors. It doesn't matter what he does. He, 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 he gives a good performance. Um, I, I, the first time I saw, I can't remember the name of the film, I think it might have been Goal or something like that, and it was a, a football movie, and uh, he he played I think he played an Englishman in it, and he was really good because I thought he was English, um, but uh, then I realised that that actually wasn't the first time I'd seen him. I think it turned out the first time I'd seen him was Face Off when he played uh, yeah. Cage's younger brother. Yeah, he was in. I think that's the most, his most famous role to yeah. date. But here he's very much in the starring role, and I think he must feel. Well, I'm, I'm only putting words in his mouth, but he must feel slightly aggrieved. I I would be that all the kind of attention is going to Michael Gandolfini. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it certainly has, you know, and, and most certainly he looks like his father. And he appeared in the HBO show The Deuce um, and various other uh, short films and, and uh, a few TV shows. But I don't. I, I think his his acting chops have yet to be proven, and I think we'll find out in this film. Judging by what's been said online, I think Sopranos fans are huge fans of it, mm-hmm. and people who haven't watched The Sopranos, like Mark Kermode, are not such huge fans of it, right. which is interesting. Yeah, <clears throat> I would imagine that would be that would be expected. And I, I can remember this this huge uh, social media media furore uh, two or three years ago. Uh, when there was an argument broke out as to what was the best TV show uh, ever. Yeah. And it was divided between The Sopranos and Sex and the City. Uh, and it, it really quite vicious as as things do on social media, as everybody seems knows. And I, I was kind of bemused by this. Is that how can you compare The, the Sopranos with, with Sex and the City? And I'm sure you mentioned The Wire and you mentioned Breaking Bad, that there will be people who preferred The Wire and or Breaking Bad to The Sopranos. Again, it's all down to your, you, you know, your own perspective and your own yep. taste. Um, but to, to compare Sex in the City and The Sopranos is just ridiculous because they're two completely different kinds of shows. And I also think that um, the time and reflects people's... I remember they had a vote for the BBC's best ever comedy show. And at the time, I think it was late in the 90s or the early noughties, and it was men behaving badly that won it. 
And you think men behaving badly winning the, the BBC's best comedy show ever. <laughs> That's not no no way. I, I can remember one of those one of those polls and porridge didn't even get a mention, didn't even get a look in. And I thought, that can't, can't, that's unbelievable that porridge didn't get a look in. And you love your porridge, Douglas, as we all I do. Know. I do. That's why you've got a hairy chest. Yes, sticks and to my bones like a poultice. It does indeed. A poultice on a poultice. Anyhow, that concludes our short discussion about the many saints of Europe. Personally, I would rush out and see it if I was you, if I were you. But... Um, I think there is a there is a caveat in that I think there's a lot of violence in it. I think there are certain violent passages or scenes. So be advised that it's not for the faint-hearted, I think. As there is in the TV show. As there is in the TV show, indeed. But, you know, TV shows tend to be on late at night and and attract a certain amount of attention. And I think there's been so much hype surrounding this movie that maybe people who wouldn't necessarily go and see a gangster film um, maybe tempted to go and see it and be surprised by what they see. Yeah, but that's 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 only my personal view. But I, again, personally, I'm looking forward immensely to seeing it. So that's the many saints of New York out in theaters, uh, movie theaters in the UK right this minute. Now, Douglas. Yeah, we should have music here, but we can't find the copyright. We should, yeah, we can't. Um... No time to die. I mean, what can we say? It's been a long wait for, for the, new, the new Bond movie. Um, the, the release date kept getting put off because of the pandemic. Uh, finally hit. It had the, the, the glittering premiere. Premiere, did you think of that? You know, the, the wee American come, creeping in there. The glittering premiere. Sure, sure, uh, goodbye. In, yeah, in the Royal Albert Hall the other night. Um, uh, Daniel Craig wearing... Was that a pink jacket he he was he was wearing or salmon? I must have I must confess to having not looked at the um, premiere um, pictures or on, on YouTube or anywhere else uh, uh, or the news. Um, it's not something that particularly interests me unless I was going to it myself. Uh, well, it, it kind of merged into the red carpet anyway, and uh, uh, so finally here and it it's it's. Bond is another thing. You either like it or you don't. And everybody says, oh, they're not as good as they were with Sean Connery or they're not as good as they were with Roger Moore or Pierce Brosnan or whatever. And everybody has their favourite Bond. Um, and again, I think that's unfair because films change, styles change, uh, all sorts of things change. So I think the Bonds that we have are suitable to the age that we are in. And I think Daniel Craig has been an excellent Bond, really has. Do you remember the Ferrari when he, he was first announced as Bond? And yeah, because he was no Bond. Bond. Yeah. yeah. Utter noise. I mean, Utter I mean, I've never heard something. I mean, as though they couldn't dye his hair, which they didn't do in the end. But No, but utter nonsense know. anyway. It's ridiculous. It really is. And I also think some of the the, the choices for the next Bond are, or the, spe- the ones that are speculated upon are yeah. equally ridiculous. Well... Just remember, that's all it is, is, is speculation. And we go through this every time um, a new Bond is, is being mooted. We, we get all these names, really. And quite often, they've not even been suggested seriously by, by Eon, oh. the production company. <laughs> this is the, the media or fans or whoever are putting this forward. I looked at your um, Instagram page not that long ago, mm-hmm. and I was shocked to see that... that 
and I, I don't know how this happened, Douglas, but you appeared to be playing Al Pacino <laughs> in Scarface. Now, did you play it first and they decided to put stick it in the cutting room floor? Yeah. Or yeah. right, okay. Yeah, I I I actually did this. It's I might as well put this out there. Um there's not a non-disclosure agreement, so we're all right. I actually did uh, play the, the, the part of, of uh, Tony Montana first, but uh, it was creative differences between myself and uh, Brian De Palma. Everybody else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, you know he, 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 I, I wanted to play the part. He wanted it to be acted properly. So I, I was out and uh, I, I said to my good friend, Al, do you want to take this over? And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Every time. No, no. no that's, exactly, that's exactly the way he said it as well. That's the way he says it. He yeah. doesn't speak in all of you. You ask him a time. It's quarter after 12. You know, it must be murder bullet next door to him. Huh? <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you get me a cup of tea? <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But and what amazes me about Al Pacino is he sounds, he sounds nothing like he does in the, in the first God, in the Godfather films. No. no. Whereas Robert De Niro sounds exactly the same as he does in the Godfather films. Are you going to do your Robert De Niro impression? I'm going to, uh, I'm a little, uh, you know, just a little. A little um, yeah, no, I'm not going to bother doing it this time. <laughs> um, no, I don't really do Robert De Niro because he, I think the best scene in, in films, or one of the best scenes ever, is Robert De Niro on the phone to Jimmy Hoffa's wife in The Irishman. And he virtually says nothing at all for about four or five minutes. Yeah. And he's in, you know, that he's someone on the phone and you can hear our voice voice coming from the other end, but it's it's a masterful performance and how not to really say anything, isn't it? Yeah. It's a good movie as well. Overlong, Al Pacino again. Overlong. Well, some people are saying that New Bond is overlong. Uh, yeah, two hours and 45 minutes or so. Yeah. Sight, sight unseen, I'm telling you, that's far too long. I'm heard it's been called in some circles that you maybe frequent as no time to pee. <laughs> you see that this is a worry for me. You see, because uh, I've reached oh, that age sure. when you do have to make you know consider uh, the the call of nature and the length of time that you might need to go before you can answer that call. But two hours and forty five minutes is just far far too long. I and might be course, proved wrong, but I don't yes. think so. You could well be proved wrong. It's not been the first time that's happened. No. I would say one of your books was good. You did, and uh, everybody else is proved wrong. Apart from a theatre critic. (laughs) See, I just can't get away from that. (laughs) So, as we've not seen the film, but we have seen other Daniel Craig outings as James Bond, Mm. what is your opinion of Craig's 007? I think he's very good. As 007. Um, I, I like the I like the grittiness that they brought in with Casino Royale, which was also overlong, by the way. Um, and um, I, I do like the way that it, that it has been done. It's still Bond, and yet it's got a bit of Bourne about it, because obviously when Casino Royale came out, the, the Bourne identity, the, the Bourne movies were, were doing uh, both little biz at the box office. Um, yeah. So that, that that has obviously been 
an influence there, even down to to getting the the uh, stunt guy, the second unit director Dan Bradley, in to do uh, in the, the early Bond movies. So yeah. th- that all worked. I liked the whole approach, um, but as I say, certainly Casino Royale was over long. Quantum of Solace, I wasn't aware of that being over long. Nor Spectre. Um, nor when uh, what was it the one with Judy Dench? Uh, her final that was one Spectre was, and the one before. No, it wasn't Spectre. Spectre was the last one, the, the last one, but this. Um, oh, Skyfall. Skyfall, that's the one. Uh, I wasn't yeah. aware of that being over long, but I did think Spectre was over long. So I might find mm-hmm. that no time to die is as well. I'm I've sure got a problem Judy- with the length of movies. I, I really do. I think yeah. a lot of movies now are far, far too long. That right, and you also think books are too long as well, don't you? I, some books, yes, are far too long. Yep. So not much of an attention span. Tick. No. no. Uh, right. So I think that my 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 um, uh, understanding of of Daniel Craig as Bond is that I think he brought more of the books to the films. Um, there's much more of the the original kind of. Yes, fuggery and violence that you'd have seen from the original Ian Fleming books. Yeah, but remember, they Sean brought, Connery brought that as well. Yeah, since Sean Connery, um, you know, Connery probably. I mean, the the Bond I grew up with was Roger Moore, mm. and you could really say that's when it was dialed back. Yeah, originally, and and in subsequent Bonds as well. I mean, it it, it was all, you know, uh, Pierce Brosnan was all about gadgets and style and watches and goodness knows what all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't think that um, the Timothy Dalton got a very good. I, th- I thought he was much better than people give him credit for. As Bond. he was, he was being a classical actor. I mean, he knew his, his stuff, and he certainly had the looks for Bond. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, the dark, you know, that kind of dark, mysterious um, aspect. Yeah. Uh, but certain other Bonds in between. Well, <clears throat> I'll be surprised who they get this time. And I'm thinking. I think on balance, Tom Hardy would be my choice. I must be honest. Mm. And at this point, I'm going to do my Tom Hardy impersonation yeah. as well. On you go. Here's a bit of a little drink for you. It's from the Peaky Binders. And Legend, and the one he did about, about um, Al Capone. Mm. He uses the same voice in all of those. In fact, in the Al Capone film, he he's that's the way he says all the time. So I'm imagining what people will say now. Bond. Yep, that's how I see it. Well, I think we should move on to our guest. I think we should. And I can't do an impersonation of her because here she is. It's a big welcome to Shona S.G. McLean. Shona, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Well, we're, we're getting along barely. Douglas has sorted his domestic situations out uh-huh. for another week. <laughs> and um, all is well in Renfrewshire and in, uh, on Loch Lomond side. So it can't be, it can't be better. These faraway exotic places that you're yes. coming from. Well, where, yes. where, no, don't tell us exactly where you are in case you get hordes of fans 
But where, where roughly are you? I am a little bit north of the Keswick Bridge. Ah, the Keswick Bridge. Many a day I've been stuck on there. Uh-huh. Yes. In a rush hour. Oh, yes. The ke- <laughs> queues at the ke- Keswick Bridge. And many a day we still wish you were stuck on there. <laughs> I, could have, I could have joined my phone. You know, as te- other technologists, Douglas has a, a phone with a broken screen, but we'll not get into that because <laughs> he's had it for just... two years. It's got character. It's 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 pesh. Anyhow, <laughs> Shona, now you are a a writer of some great repute, multi award winner, and um, historical right f- fiction writer. But you started off. Uh, in research, historical research, no doubt after university. Could you tell us a bit about your beginnings and your interest in history? Oh, um, I'd, you know, going back to going to university in the first place, I'd gone to study mod- modern languages and I had to pick something to fill up my timetable. And so I picked history because I thought it sounded interesting. Um, and gradually, as the years went by, I dropped the languages and they did the degree in history and then did a PhD in history. Um, so, I, I mean, I always had been interested in, you know, I, I grew up in Easter Ross primarily, um, and that's got very strong connections with the Picts and the Vikings and things like that. And there are elements of their, you know, their standing stones and things uh, still there. So I'd always been kind of fascinated with the past. Um, and I, I you know, after I'd graduated and then I did my PhD, although I was doing something academic, um, I always found myself in the archive wondering about the lives of, of these kind of anonymous characters I was reading about and uh, making up wee stories in my head, I suppose. So um, I think I was always probably going to veer towards fiction eventually. So do you, do you see what you write as as historical crime fiction because that's what it's, it's labelled as or do you just see it as historical fiction? I just see it as to be honest I see it as historical fiction and in fact when I started to me um, it wasn't even historical fiction I was just writing about what I was most comfortable with which was the 17th century um, which I'm, I'm a bit of a Luddite I'm a bit rubbish with technology and everything else and I think I was just quite comfortable in the 17th century um, so to me, primarily, I was just writing the first book was a book I wanted to write um, that happened to be historical. I, I made the terrible mistake of putting a murder in it. Um, <laughs> I needed something to be the catalyst for other things that happened to my characters and I put a murder in it. And, you know, I'm not this isn't me being disparaging um, about you know, crime fiction and being a crime fiction writer. But once you have got a book with a murder in it, you're a crime fiction writer. Everybody expects that that's what your books will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been times since then that I've wanted to do other kind of books, but because I'm marketed and branded in that way, um, I've always been dissuaded from continuing with them. So Yeah, yeah I mean, I can see that absolutely because... Uh, you know, we're all tarred with the same brush, if you like. And I, you know, I think it's Ian Rankin that said, we're writers, we're not historical yeah. writers, or we're not we're not crime writers, or we're not chick lit writer, or whatever you call it now. I heard chick lit mm-hmm. called chick writ the other day, which I thought was really good. 
but but and I think it's the same. It's it's always been a shame to me how people become or writers become pigeonholed, mm-hmm. um, because it's unfair. It's that, that well, go, it's our ongoing argument at Tartan Noir. I mean, I've, I'm utterly against this Tartan Noir term because it pigeonholes people, and readers buy a book by say Douglas Skelton, and then they read a book by me or you or Ian Rank, and they're entirely different, and yeah. somehow they feel shortchanged. Would you not agree? Um, absolutely. I think, you know, the things that get put together under umbrellas like Tartan Noir are really, really diverse um, mm. types of reads and types of fiction. And, um, you know, and, and also individual readers will read lots of different kinds of books. Uh, so they're not necessarily going to expect you to write the same. Kind, I don't think they expect you to write the same kind of book every time. Um, possibly oh. they do. Um, but, yeah, I think... Um, It's a useful term because then, you know, you can set up a festival under that umbrella or um, you get invited to talk on panels. But sometimes you find yourself on panels with, uh, you'll have a collection of writers who have very little in common. And sometimes it's difficult to find common ground other than that somebody gets killed in their books. Yeah, when I read your first book, your Alexander Seaton book, and it was the first of anything I'd read of yours, Mm. and I was completely blown away by it. I mean, I'm I'm a regular reader of historical fiction, and I thought it was just, it just took me to Aberdeenshire at that time. And I I don't know Aberdeenshire very well in the present day, um, and I probably think I know it now better than (laughs) in the period that you wrote that (laughs) book. (laughs) Uh, So I, I, I was... You know, and I've read the, the Seeker books since, and I think they're absolutely great. I really, really do. Well, thank you. Thanks. Um, Douglas, will come in. Douglas will say something disparaging now. <laughs> what an absolute crawler he is. <laughs> the first book that you, you when you, you mentioned the, the first book that you wrote and you put the murder in, was that the first Alexander Seaton book, or have you got an unpublished published manuscript or two tucked away in a drawer? That that was the, um, the first Alexander Seaton book that was the first full book that I wrote I do have a couple of partially written manuscripts um on shelves in the study here I'm talking from my study um but they're not finished um one is a historical novel one is a contemporary novel and neither of them are murder stories um and basically I I sort of left them lying after discussing them with my editor who you know very gently you know because her, her job is to to um produce commercial fiction or, or fiction that will sell who, who very gently said that um you know i'm marketed as a, an historical crime writer and and they weren't crime so and the, yeah the, that, there is sorry, sorry just, just just to continue with that the historical one is that the one that's set in cromarty yes yes it is um, set in Cromarty around about 1832, the year that Walter Scott died and Goethe had died, and um, the the citizens of Cromarty set up a, a circulating library, basically a, a sort of um, a, a big reading group for the great and the good of uh, of the town. And I thought this was a a fascinating way of of looking into a society at the time. Uh, it's the time Hugh Miller was living in the town. He was still a stonemason, and uh, there was a cholera epidemic. So there was an awful lot going on, um, and I thought it'd be a really interesting uh, thing to have a look at. Um, and I did enjoy what I was writing of it. So I'm not 
you know, I, I hope to go back to it at some point. It's certainly a very interesting period and it sounds fascinating. And I'm, is that is that the book you're writing now or is this, this another project no, that you're working on? No, uh, that, that's a project that I've uh, shelved for the moment. Sure. Um, what, what I'm doing just now, very sadly, is working through my editor's line notes on my latest, uh, my latest book, the one that's due out next year. And, uh, you know, it's like you want to send the book away and the editor will go, oh, that's marvellous, it's lovely, nothing needs done to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, sadly, no. I mean, I'm I'm very lucky. I've had the same editor for, well, this is my 10th book that I'm working on. And um, I've had the same editor all the way through. Uh, she knows how to handle me, I think. Um, <laughs> but with certainly from, from my experience, um, people haven't tried to shoehorn me into to somehow writing about, you know, whatever the most popular contemporary issue is. Um, I think because, you know, I try to write my books very much from the period they're set in and try to do it from the viewpoint of somebody who who had been living then. And I, I actually don't try to write them to reflect particular issues now, which, you know, I know that some historical writers will write historical novels in order to say something about the present day. Um, which I I don't think I could write quite subtly enough to do. Um, yeah. But sometimes when I've written a book, I will see parallels afterwards. Um, but no, I've, I've been very lucky. My editor, basically she knows how to tidy up a book, how to make it better. It's just when you're in that process, <laughs> it's uh, quite upsetting. Can you send her to Douglas, please? Because he's in desperate <laughs> need of that. Definitely. <laughs> I enjoy Douglas's books very much, I have to say. I very much enjoy the, the Rebecca Connolly books. And as somebody who is very familiar with Inverness, I think he's got it pretty well. Thanks, Shona. You book? tell him. You tell him, Shona. <laughs> what, what books? What, what uh, the, the... <laughs> Don't be drawn in, Shona. <laughs> no, I, do you know, I am the most naive person in the world. No, you're all. not. Douglas is. <laughs> Douglas is the only man that goes out to buy a car because he says his car's getting a bit old and it will start to cost him money and then goes and buys a car that's slightly older than the car he's just sold. You see, as usual, Denzel, you, you've put your own spin on that story. Uh, <laughs> I, I had to buy a car because the old car broke down. It was going to cost me far more to fix or almost as much to fix as it was worth. So that was how that happened. But what, what's the, the process? So how long you know, does each phase of, of, of writing your books take? So how long do you take just you know, thinking about it, then doing the research and then the writing? Um, roughly, roughly. I probably spend about three months thinking about it and doing initial research. Um, and then I'll I'll start on the writing. But to be honest, I'm I'm reading all the way through um, because you, I don't know about you, but you never feel that you've quite done enough research. Um, and it maybe takes about 14 months before it's ready to go to my editor. Um, and then we have about three months of back and forth. <laughs> so it takes quite a long time. Good grief. It's almost a year and a half per book. Yes. I mean, I know it should be quicker, but I'm I'm quite slow. As I say, I, I do more reading than I need to. And then the, the editorial process is, is very uh, thorough. See, if you were with so, Polygon, you'd have your nose to the grindstone and they'd make you churn out a book every 
nine months or so at the very least. It don't is. they, Douglas? Don't they? Douglas, say something. No, I'm not getting drawn into that. Um, <laughs> a complete coward, Shona. There you are. I, I, I prefer to think of it as diplomatic. And, and in case they're listening. <laughs> Shona, you, you know that they, as we all know, the world's been through a terrible or a terribly tumultuous period over the last um, 18 months, nearly two mm-hmm. years now. And how do you think that's affected not only publishing in general, but um, your genre, for want of a better word? Um, do you think people read less or more? I think there's a tendency for people to seek out nostalgia in mm-hmm. times of crisis. Would you, do you think that, there's any, that bears that out? Certainly that's what I'm hearing anecdotally, that a historical fiction um, sales have gone up because people are, are turning to, well, it, it wasn't a time when things were safer, but I think people are reassured that we got through those times, so we'll get through this, you know? Um, but I, yeah. I do feel people have uh, turned more to historical fiction, to reading it, yeah. What I couldn't understand was the trend right at the beginning of all this for people to read books about pandemics. No. <laughs> which I, I just didn't, you know, you had it in the news, you had it everywhere, you, but there was so much tragedy. And so I know what I'll have to choose for bedtime reading. This book about a pandemic, that'll take my mm-hmm. mind off things nicely. I thought that was, what, what about you, Douglas? Did you read anything pandemic oh, No, not at all. Not, not uh, since the, the COVID uh, pandemic. But when I was younger, I read a lot of books about pandemics. Um, so but not not since then. What, <clears throat> so you, Shona, you've, there's four Alexander Seton books and five Damien Seekers. And so where did the, where did the notion of Damien Seeker come from? Um, I, my, my publishers were very keen that I should send Alexander Seaton down to London. Um, and I, you know, basically I think it was to increase sales, to make it more appealing to readers south of the border. Um, and I just could not, uh, I couldn't feel a book with him in London, if you know what I mean. I could think of a plot, a reason for him to go to London, but it was going to be the most tedious book in the world. So um, that just wasn't going to work. Uh, so I, I thought my publishers and I were actually finished. Um, and then I saw a documentary on 17th century London that uh, came to the you know, London coffee shops in the 1650s in the time of Oliver Cromwell. And there were spies, there was obsession with the news, there were um, royalists plotting against uh, Cromwell. Cromwell had uh, a tremendous intelligence service uh, going on during during his protectorate. So there were lots of elements that I thought, well, that could make a really good uh, story. Um, and I, I thought up this story based in a coffee shop, all these different characters who weren't quite what they claimed to be, you know. And uh, my editor phoned, up, phoned me up one day and said, how's the book coming along? And I sort of thought, what book? We never talked about this. <laughs> so I, I told her about it and she really liked the idea. And she said, of course, you'll have to think really carefully about your, your detective character. And I didn't like to tell her that I had not actually got a detective character. Everything would just evolve nicely by the end. <laughs> the, the, you know. Uh, the, the mystery would reveal itself and um, so I didn't I didn't mention that I didn't have one and after afterwards I just got my wellies on got the dog went for a, a stomp in the woods and I genuinely 
in my mind's eye, I, d- I knew I wasn't actually seeing this, but in my mind's eye, I saw a character emerging at a fork in the path ahead of me. And he was sort of tall, long black cloak, black boots, very forbidding. Um, and I knew that this was my detective character, my new main character, and that his name was Damien Seeker. Um, and that may sound like I'm making it up, but that's actually where it came from. No, 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 I'm getting a headline from that. Best-selling author takes magic mushrooms on walk. <laughs> no, the mushrooms were book three of that series. But... <laughs> that's right, yes. Good grief, that's even better headline. I'll go into that immediately with the sun. <laughs> we've, we've, picked, we've picked these out, we've picked people we think, well, they'll be good for the papers. <laughs> the, the, and, and also, um, I must say, when... I've read a, a lot of historical novels, as I've said, and Patrick O'Brien is a great man for bringing into a real world, the wooden world of a, a Napoleonic War um, UK sailing ship. But you also do that with, with Seeker and, and, and the previous uh, Alexander Seaton. Mm-hmm. How do you feel occupying that world? How, how, I mean, if that was me, I've done a bit of, wee bit of historical flashing back here and there and uh, the daily novels, but that only to the extent mm-hmm. that we go back to the 1930s or the 1940s mm-hmm. or whatever. Do you? How confident do you feel? For for me, I'd be I'd be sitting in, on tenterhooks for people reading this to to point out mistakes and say things that I'd done wrong. How how do you approach that? Um, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. And um, with the Alexander Seaton books, I was very very conscious of that. Um, because I wrote them a lot closer to the time when I'd been doing my PhD and doing academic research. And I just had this feeling that people were going to point out the most minute errors they could find. Um, And the the fact is probably most of the the people I'd been working with when I was doing academic research weren't going to be reading my book anyway. Um, You know, and and if they were, I hope they'd be reading it for enjoyment. But um, so I, I... worked really hard at getting things right and if I couldn't get if I couldn't know that something was right I didn't put it in um with the Damien Seeker books I was coming at those from the outside you know I'd been immersed in in the world of Alexander Seaton for years before I started writing fiction about it um the Damien Seeker books I had to do a lot of reading a lot of looking at old maps and then I went down to London and I just walked I walked the streets this isn't this that's another newspaper very good, good but, grief uh, <laughs> just, just writing that down now hang on good man Douglas that's the stuff magic that's it. mushrooms <laughs> Streetwalking. But I think basically, if you can get the feel of a place right, that's what matters in persuading somebody that they're there. It's not necessarily a vast amount of detail. If you can get the way that a person is going to feel somewhere. Um, and you know, you know this with with your own books, with the daily books. Um, you know, when he's on some island or some windswept bit of coastline, you can really feel how it is to be there. Because um, well, I, I think, probably, I probably yeah. have been there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, so so sometimes it's just one small detail opens things up for you um, without yeah. having to have loads and loads of stuff in there. Yeah. And would you ever consider, Shona, writing a book out with his history? Would you think of a contemporary crime thriller? And I know we talked about crime earlier, but is, is that on your, within your orbit? No, I, as I say, I've got uh, the makings of a contemporary 
a contemporary novel, but it's not really crime. The crime that happens in it is quite incidental, you know, to this society that's kind of imploding. Mm. Um, but no, I when years and years ago, when I was uh, expecting my first child, I started writing a contemporary crime novel set in Aberdeen. And in those days, um, you know, people didn't have laptops. I was typing it. I mean, she's she'll be 31 next month. She won't like me saying that, but she probably won't be listening to this. She'll be 31 next month. So, you know, people typed. And I, um, I, I know I typed 179 pages of this novel because one time when I was moving house, I found page 179 and none oh, of the dear. rest of it. <laughs> oh, <dear>. um, <laughs> But, you know, in the meantime, Stuart McBride had come along anyway, so nobody was going to want what I had to say about, about contemporary Aberdeen. Mm-hmm. And um, publishers, so... pu- publishers sit wishing that Douglas had had the same experience <laughs> and lost all but one page of his novels. But unfortunately, <laughs> you know, Douglas. Yes, Denzel. Um, Hi. So the, the, the new one, the one that's coming out uh, next year, have you got a title for it and when is it coming out? Yes, it's called The Bookseller of Inverness and it's coming out in September of next year. Um, it's set in the 1750s, um, a few years after the Battle of Culloden, and it's set amongst Jacobites, some of whom are bent on revenge. Um, so that's about all I can really say about it at the moment. Shona, um, do you, do you, but now you've described that, it, it, it brings something to mind. Do you think that there's an outlander effect for that period? Oh, there. I mean, there definitely is. Um, again, because I because I live at you know I live near Inverness. There's there's um, you can see the outlander effect, and you can see if you look on Instagram or anything like that. There's a huge outlander following. Um, and it was you know I haven't actually read any of the outlander books or seen the TV. Uh, programs and I'm I'm determined not to at least until after the this book is yeah. out because I don't want to you know absorb anything or anything like that um, and when I was researching the book uh, one of my friends uh, Jennifer Morag Henderson who wrote the biography of Josephine T Jennifer knows everything about Inverness and the surrounding area and I'd say you know do you want to come with me we'll up this hill I want to look up for a cave that I found on a map and she'd say oh is that the one that's an outlander and you know just about every location <laughs> you go to outlander has been there before you Diana Gabaldon has been there first yeah um so I you know I, I don't know how much my book will be for outlander fans I it would be great if they all bought it <laughs> that would be good um so I don't know but I, yeah there's definitely an effect I mean, I can tell you there's a man not too far away from us who is also going to be new competition for you. We can't, like, like you said about your own note, we can't talk much about it. But there is a new historical writer in our midst. Really? I am very intrigued. I've heard hints of this, but he's been keeping things very close to his chest. Who uh, is this fellow? You men- <laughs> Denzel, you mentioned him last week as well. Who is this author you're it's, talking about? I mean, it is rubbish. But he's trying. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I have read this novel by this person and it's very, very good. Not quick, as good as your story. Quick, let's get that re-recorded and put out there. <laughs> Again, as I, usual. I know, was... I'm really looking forward to, to reading this book. I'm very intrigued about it. 
that's four people now. That's good. Yep. Yep. Just to be clear, it's not got a publisher as yet. So we, we wait and see. There is no there is no deal as yet. It's just going out. Uh, now, we'd be remiss, and I'm sure you're fed up being, being asked about this, but you are the niece of the famous Alistair McLean. Yes, that's right. Uh-huh. And, and what brought it to mind was last night I was listening to the wireless, as we still do in Loch Lomond Side, uh-huh. and it was the new James Bond premiere. Uh-huh. Douglas and I have been talking about James Bond um, in, in the other part of this podcast. Now, when your uncle Alistair wrote... Uh, when, uh, for eight, when Eight Bells Told, Douglas, that's, that's the title, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's long since I've read. I really enjoyed the book at the time, but it's when I was more very young, in my early teens, maybe. And the, a comparison was made to that book and indeed the film that was made of that book and James Bond. Do you, do you think your Uncle Alistair would have been comfortable with that comparison? I don't know. Somebody else asked me recently about uh, him and, and Ian Fleming's writing. And the honest truth is, I don't know, because I never heard him talking about it. Um, so I couldn't really give give a view. I, th- I think he very much was just somebody that wrote the kind of books he wrote and probably didn't worry too much about comparisons with other <laughs> people. You know? Yeah, I read his biography and years ago as well. And I've got to say he comes across, he came across that biography as very much of his, his own man. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. think it's fair to say. And and not only did he do that, that he was one of the, I think, handful of writers that was responsible for, for me wanting to be a writer. So I thank him posthumously. I wish I could have met him. Uh, I knew Angus mm-hmm. McVicker, who was a friend of his, and Angus yeah. told me great stories about time he spent with her uncle Alistair. So it, it's, it must be really interesting to have somebody with... Uh, like that in your family Uh, yeah I mean as I you know when I was little um it was it was something to kind of aspire to you know it was something quite exciting um growing up in the 70s and and you'd see the films coming up on tv and you know when I was quite little I was aware that there was some connection between me and this name on the the television um, and then as time went on and he would come and visit and I got to know him better um, it was it was quite strange in some ways that this in some ways very ordinary Highland man who who dressed just like my yeah. dad had all this paraphernalia of fame about him you know um mm-hmm. it you know I, I mean I can remember being in a, a a very nice hotel with him once uh, out on the terrace and there were quite a lot of people at the table and people talking about the menu as a metropolitan types tend to do you know talking about food as if it was great literature and I'd never heard of this before I mean you know growing up I you know people would say well that's very tasty or that's a bit dry or something And, and these people were you know rhapsodizing about the the food on the menu and when it came to him ordering he he just handed it back and said oh i'll just have some fish and potatoes you know so, <laughs> a man uh, after my own heart <laughs> nonsense um, you're, a, you're a frozen pizza man <laughs> yeah but i'm not likely to get that in a, in, in a metropolitan hotel you're not likely to be in a metropolitan hotel let's be honest <laughs> no, 
Um, well, th this was actually, it was, it was in Dubrovnik, but the, the people who were, most of the people around the table were very sophisticated types. And then there was his, his nieces from the Highlands who weren't. So, well, Dubro um, Dubrovnik was one of the places to go, in, you know, back in the day, wasn't it? The 60s and 70s and before. Uh, Dubrovnik was one of the, and it was like Samaritz and places like that. You know, it was really, really trendy. It was, I mean, it, it was lovely. He he lived the, the last few years of his life there. It was, and he, he really loved it. And it was a beautiful place. Yeah. Sean, I will not keep you too much longer. Thank you so much for, for being on with us. But just before you go, um, you've spent time in lockdown like everybody else has. Uh, but you spent it in the most beautiful surroundings because I see your pictures on on uh, social media. How hard or easy has lockdown been in you? On me personally, it's been pretty easy, and and we did talk often um, in the in the most stringent lockdown about how lucky we were to first of all to have a garden, and secondly to live where we could live. You know, I could go out a walk or go out on my bike and cycle and be somewhere beautiful. Um, but then, you know, the, the younger generation, for instance, uh, you know, with, with two kids still at home uh, studying and things. And, and I think it's been really, really hard on them. But generally, for me personally, I can't complain. Yeah, it's been a strange time for us all. Shona, on behalf of Douglas and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time out to be in Spooks with us today. It's been really interesting. And I wish you well for the new project coming up. And I know you can't say too much about it but it sounds fascinating from what you've told us. Uh, and, and thank you being, for being a Spooks guest. Well, thank you for having me on. Thank you. And what a smashing guest SG Shona McLean was, Dougs. Of course, yes. I knew she would be. I've, 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 I've done a couple of panels with Shona. I've seen her talk. Uh, and I knew she'd be a great, a great guest. I mean, her books, her books are top-notch. And I read a lot of historical fiction and... Shona has restored my faith in historical fiction, her and Hilary Mantel, over the last few years, because, you know, it was becoming very parodied. Everybody was wanting to be C.J. Sansom, as, as she mentioned in the interview. And see, I, I also like C.J. Sansom, but everybody can't be C.J. Sansom. No. And I think she, she made that point very clear, and she's a talent all in her own right. Yes. So... To our final quick subject before we close this this episode of Spooks, we're going to talk about TV. TV, what have you been watching, Dougs? Obviously, I watched Vigil along with, you know, most of the country. Uh, and it was, <laughs> Vigil was what it was. You know, people can pick holes at it and they can sneer at it. But, you know, it was it was a, 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 pacey, a pacey thriller. I would have preferred a bit more attention to, you know, Scottish legal procedure. <laughs> or not, well, not just Scottish, but I mean, and the, the, and the, and the MOD, yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think there was no regard at all for any kind of, no. not only, I mean, the very idea of a Scottish police officer cautioning, charging a guy out in the middle of the Atlantic in a submarine, I think you'd have all kind of jurisdictional problems with that yeah. if it came to court. Yeah. yeah. But that's the way it is. That's the way it goes. Um, and uh, but, but I'd like to have seen more of Cal McIninch in it, who's an actor that, that, that I know personally. So friend he, of yours. He was friend of yours. Um, yes, he's very good. What else? I have Stephen, which was on ITV. Uh, I, I and it was a, 
Oh, it was great. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, while Vigil was doing all its flash and bang and wallop, uh, Stephen was just getting on with the job in a nice, quiet way and, and dignified way. And, and mm. you know, really good drama. Uh, even with Steve Coogan in it, I'm not a huge Steve Coogan fan, uh, but I think he did well. And I, I, I recorded Manhunt, um, the, uh, the, the Night Stalker, I think it's subtitled. Mm. I've only seen two or three of the episodes, but again, it's very good. It's ITV and Martin Clunes uh, as, as, as a police officer. So ITV are churning out some really good stuff. I've been watching, um, uh, I watched the most recent, recent and final series of Goliath. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say anything about that because <laughs> stylistically, it's a cross between James Bond and a um, Hong Kong Kung Fu movie, if you can imagine such a thing. It really is stylistically like like nothing I've ever seen before on TV. Um, you know, that's that's all I'm going to say. You know, your man does his, his, his usual, Billy, Billy, Billy oh, yeah. Bob Thornton, he does his yeah. usual wonderful performance, but I'm not sure that the script holds up to scrutiny. Yeah. But I'll leave that for other people to decide. But I have been delighted to be watching reruns of <clears throat> Endeavour. Mm. Is that... That you're just catching up with it? Um, I did watch the first three or four seasons, and then for some reason we stopped. I think I ended up in hospital and I lost the habit of it. Right. Um, so I've been watching everything from t- late 2016 onwards. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's and, you know, I love that kind of heartbeat nostalgia that it evokes. Yeah. And it's also really, <clears throat> I thought it was one of the, the shows where, they they did the prequel and the we're talking about the many saints of New York earlier. The guys who played and the, the women who played the parts in the prequel were so well cast mm-hmm. in every way. They they you know they could easily have been the characters in the later Morse series oh, yeah. Or, yeah. or earlier Morse series as it was in reality. Especially um, Terence Rigby, who's playing Strange, uh, Sergeant Strange, who um, Yeah, he's really good. Was one of my favourite characters in the in the John Thaw Morse. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, it's great. It's really as good. Really good. I I also th- think uh, Sean Evans, who plays young Morse, the, if you remember the back to the very first episode, it had Sean Evans' real father dying in his bed. He was an old man. He was dying of something or, or other, and he looked so like Morse in later years. It was unreal. Mm. So there was all that kind of correlation going on and all that. Yeah. You know, there was so much going on. And I think if you get a chance, people, it's on ITV Hub. Yeah. Sean Evans was the best thing in Vigil, I thought. Well, I don't think there was any much. Well, I thought Rose Rose Leslie was good. Sorry, yes, Rose Leslie was 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 excellent. Um, but I I thought Sean Evans was was very, very good as well. As for the bangs and whistles you were talking about, I didn't really see any bangs and whistles. Just clunky dialogue and... Um... Well, it was all flash, bang and wallop, I said. It was all flash. It was a very, very flashy show, Vigil. All uh, flash and no bang. Yeah, well, it, it, a lot of people enjoyed say. it. A lot of people enjoyed it. I'm sure they did. And it's as you said before, it's a matter of personal taste. Yes. It sure is. And with that, on that note, we shall end today's Spooks number three in this new season. And what a show it has been. I'd like to thank Shona McLean, our guest, who was wonderful. And I'd like to thank Douglas. I'd like to thank him, but I'm not going to. 
So it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me as well. I said that last week, Denzel, my honest to goodness. Did you? I wasn't listening. I, I don't know. think you did say that. You never I listened to yourself I anyway. I did. I said I'd like to thank Denzel Myrick, but I can't. Did you say that? I did. How do you remember? Because you never listen back to shows because you can't stand your voice. The hideous well, I have, nature I of have to voice. listen back to a certain amount because I'm doing the editing. Afterwards. I'm doing the post-production, so I do have to listen to a certain amount. Post-production. Good gracious. Oh, yes. Who's doing the, who's doing the CGI? Anyway, from I, us at Spooks, it's goodbye and don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice this has been a houses of steel production goodbye